I want to know what it's like to be a, 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 a what, what the experience is like for a soldier in a real in a real military, a trained soldier, American soldier in combat in Afghanistan. Uh, it was a country that I had a huge personal investment in, emotional investment in. Now my country is there for years or decades. I wanted to know what it was like, and that was what sort of like got me onto the other side, basically of being okay. I won't I, I won't be interviewing the Afghans this time. I'll be with an American platoon. Their experience is my experience. I want to know what that is. How was that to be not on the Afghan side, but to be on the U.S. soldier side when you go into the villages and things like that? It was really weird. You know, I mean, I'm, uh, uh, I got, I started to see things the way the soldiers do. Like, uh, you know, I was used to being sort of in the Afghan population and seeing them as my friends. Um, I mean, when I was with Massoud in 2000 in the north, we came under very heavy attack. Um, it was a very, very bad time up there. We were on a front-line position that Massoud's forces had just taken over from the Taliban. I mean, the heavy machine guns were still pointed the wrong way. And we got up there, and it was, there were trenches. I mean, it was almost like World War I, you know. And, and we got up there, and the Taliban counterattacked, and they started with a missile barrage. Um, and I remember a, a young Afghan fighter. I mean, we were on the ground, you know. I mean, these missiles, there was nothing we could do. I mean, it was really like being sort of spanked by God. You know, it's like there was no counter, counter action that we were capable of. We just had to take it. And, and we lost a horse. There were no casualties. We lost, a ho- we lost our horse. Um, horses can't get down, obviously. And, and so it was killed by a rocket. But um, I remember a young Afghan fighter got on top of me to protect me. And it was because... In that world, in his society, it's such a great dishonor to have a guest killed under your watch that you might as well die. You know, it's like you might as, it's not even worth living. So um, that was my experience in Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, I was with the American soldiers, and no one knew who was the Taliban and who wasn't. And everyone, everyone we talked to potentially was someone who could kill us. And... I became as paranoid as the, as the soldiers, and for very, very good reason. I mean, I was almost killed out there. Everyone in the platoon was almost killed. And um, it was a very strange experience to suddenly... I mean, humans are malleable, you know? Like, all of a sudden, this was my... The soldiers, that was my tribe now. Those were my people. And my, what happened to them happened to me. And the, the, the change in perspective happened so fast. It happened in days. And I saw the Afghans with the same suspicion that the soldiers did, and that, that took like a week. It was amazing how fast it was. And I'm sure it would go back in the other direction. You know, the next time I report from the civilian population, which is probably the, my next assignment out there in the fall, I'm sure it will go back just as quickly. It's really, really interesting how that happens. Um, just one more follow-up question on that in terms of being on both sides. There's In the book, you write about um, the the Taliban fighter who loses a leg and is crawling across the terrain and he's killed and yeah. how the American soldiers cheered and how, and you write a, quite a bit in the book about how that made you feel. And I'm just, could, have you had further thoughts since you wrote the book and since that incident about how, how you, can you, re, re, how you reconcile those emotions that they expressed? I mean, this is the deal that I made with, with myself. I knew that I was—I didn't have a chance of being objective, and for that matter, I don't think any journalist really does. I think objectivity is—it's like pure, like justice. It must be strived for, but you're never going to get there. Um, 
And, uh, but, you know, in my situation, I'm not writing about the broader war. I'm writing about a platoon, the soldier's experience. I knew I didn't have a chance of being objective. And in some ways, I didn't even really want to be. I, I wanted to understand their experience. And they're not objective. They're subjective. They're soldiers. And I wanted to sort of understand that. But the deal I made with myself was that if I was going to give up for the first time in my life even a striving of objectivity, if I was really going to sort of throw myself into this experience and see it as soldiers see it, the, what I had to do was be completely honest with myself and, 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 and with my readers in my book. And that meant talking about very uncomfortable things. And one of those was the sort of weird joyousness uh, in the platoon when they killed this guy. I mean, they never saw the enemy. You know, the enemy was always shooting from three, four hundred yards away. They almost never saw them. And in this one case, they saw them, and they saw this guy, and they killed him. And there was this weird sort of cheer that went up. And it really bothered me. And I put it in the book because it bothered me. Like, that was the deal I made with myself. Like, okay, I'll be... I'll be I will allow myself to sink, sink completely into this experience, but everything must be explored. And so I really talked about it in my book, and I talked about it with those guys. Like, I mean, I literally said to them, wow, that was ugly. Like, what the hell were you guys cheering about? Like, I understand the, near, I, I understand the need to kill that guy because he was shooting at you. I don't understand the cheer. And their explanation, this one guy, Steiner, his explanation was actually quite profound and illuminating. Um, I didn't have further thoughts on it. Like, everything that I had to think about that experience wound up in my book. And after I finished my book, um, writing my book was a very intense experience. I mean, I every night, I wrote it very fast in six months while we were making the movie. Uh, Tim and I shot all the video for this movie. We directed it. We produced it. We financed it. It's our baby. And we made this movie, and I wrote my book at the same time in six months, Every night, I was back in the Korangal Valley in my dreams. I mean, I was like, I was almost a little crazy doing this. And once I finished the book and the movie, I was like, the door shut. I, I didn't want any more processing of this material. When, what came first the, in terms of a project? You wrote the articles for Vanity Fair as a contributing editor. And you're, you're a print journalist. This is your first film. I mean, you, I understand that you've shot some footage for ABC's. I, I, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to shoot footage. Like, a monkey could do it, seriously. It's not hard. Like, news footage in combat, seriously, it's not hard. Um, turn it on, you know, point to the thing that's making the most noise, basically. <laughs> um, how, how did you decide to make a film, though? What, what was it that... I had this very naive idea. Like, I wanted to write a book about a platoon for a whole deployment. I thought, okay, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to pay for this by getting assignments. from. I'm going to get Vanity Fair to sign on to this. I'll do a couple of articles, and I'll go out. I did a total of five one-month trips. Tim Hetherington, my partner, also did five one-month trips. So we covered a lot of their deployment. And I thought, as long as I'm spending that much time out there, I might as well shoot video. Like, at the very least, I can just sort of give it to, Vanity, to uh, ABC News, and they'll use it as B-roll in their you know, nightly news or whatever. And then I thought, well, as long as I'm doing that, I might as well make a. Do I might as well shoot a lot of video, and make a documentary. The phrase "make a documentary," I had no idea, like how hard and absurd that was. I mean, it was just like it's like okay, I'll 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 ski across America or something. It's like it would. It would I had no idea. It was just such a naive thought. But had I known how hard it was, I wouldn't have done it. So thank God, you know, thank God I didn't know. And how. But I'd like to just get into that a little bit more in terms of, yeah, it's 
challenging and you shot many hours of footage. Did you know what your story was going to be for your film? Or wh where did you find the spine of your narrative? I mean, that happened in the edit room. We had 150 hours of footage. We had the, the interviews that we did in Italy. They're, they're based in Vicenza, Italy. And we followed them three months later and did those studio interviews that really made, in my opinion, made the film. Um, we, I mean, basically, we, we followed a rough chronology. Um, time sort of compressed or expanded, like Operation Rock Avalanche, which was sort of the emotional, not high points, the wrong word, but it was sort of the sort of culmination, the emotional culmination of that deployment for those guys. Uh, a lot of casualties, a lot of, um, a lot of pain in that. Um, that happened a third of the way into the deployment. In the movie, it happens two-thirds of the way. You know, we just made a kind of narrative choice about that. We didn't switch events. Like, we didn't actually put something that happened later before anything else. But we did compress or expand the timeline. Um, w what we wanted to... We had two principles for this movie. One was that the movie had to portray what it's like to be a soldier in combat, which meant nothing... We, we could not have access to anything soldiers did not have access to. We could not interview the families because they didn't have access to their families. They're away from their families. We couldn't interview the wives, right? We couldn't, they can't, a soldier can't ask a general, like, why are we in the Korangal Valley, sir? Like, soldiers can't do that. So we did not do that. We, we wanted the camera to never leave their side. And um, the other principle was in, const in constructing the movie in the edit room, we hired an editor, a great editor, Michael Levine, and then his assistant, uh, Maya Muma. And so the four of us were in the edit room all summer long working on this thing. And our principle was, well, first of all, it was almost like a jury. Like, everything had to be unanimous. If anyone was absolutely opposed to something, we, it didn't happen. We had to convince everyone that this was a good choice. That was complicated. I'm used to writing on my own. Like, I don't have to consult with anybody, you know? That was complicated. And the, But the other principle was the feelings that watching the movie aroused in us had to be the same feelings that we had when we were out there. That Tim and I had out there had to be, watching the movie had to produce the same emotions. Um, and sometimes we would construct scenes that were just kind of a little false and just didn't quite work. And those went. Those went away because we were trying for an emotional truth. And we knew in our heart, we knew in our heart when we were there or not. Like, it was pretty clear. Can you talk about, if you have the soldiers seen the film and yeah. what's their response and also for military? Um, second platoon, um, th that was our first screening. We brought as many of those guys as we could to New York City. Some of them couldn't make it. Um, they were, um, had transferred to other units in the military and couldn't get free. But we, we brought about two-thirds of the platoon to New York with their wives or girlfriends and put them up at a hotel and showed them the movie it was during an incredible blizzard in New York. It was last December. I mean, an amazing blizzard. And um, we watched the movie, and we went back to this bar, and they all got pretty drunk. And they loved, they loved the movie. They absolutely loved it. And the wives loved it. Like, a common comment by the wives was, you know, our, our men came home, and they were so affected by this, by this experience, and, 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 and that affected the marriage. But they can't talk about it. Like, we, don't, we as the wives, I'm speaking as a wife here, like, we as the wives 
don't know what it was they went through because they can't talk about it, but it's affecting the marriage. Like, we don't know what to do, right? Watching the movie, all of a sudden, they got it. They're like, oh, that's what happened. That's what my husband can't talk about. That's what it felt like. That's why he wants to go back. A lot of them wanted to go back. And the wives felt very rejected and didn't understand it. After what, I mean, one woman said to me, it was actually about my book, War. The book's very similar. I mean, it's the, it's the book equivalent of this movie. It's not political. It's experiential. But this woman said to me, if I had known, if I had read your book before the divorce, we wouldn't have gotten divorced. Um, so there was something about the movie that explained something essential to the people, the women who love these guys. Um, my wife and I left at about 2 in the morning. We left the bar. It was snowing like crazy. We were like, okay, this is whatever course this evening's taking. We're not riding this train. And so we, we, you know, we, we left. And the guys continued drinking. And they finally tried to make it back to the hotel on foot. It was like the last patrol, right? And <laughs> they made it. Most of them made it. One, one, one of, the, one of them, uh, Don, Donahoe is his name, he, so he sort of fell behind. And he fell behind, and it, and it was just a swirling snowstorm in Manhattan. He'd never been to Manhattan before. And he fell behind. It was like whiteout conditions. He had no idea where he was. He was like blind drunk. And he just curled up on a doorstep, and it snowed and snowed and snowed, and it covered him up with snow. Like he woke up under a snowdrift. I mean, you got to be 19 to survive that, right? And so he woke up in the morning, kind of lurched out of the snowdrift. It was like 7 in the morning. And he had no idea where he was, and he brushed the snow off himself, and he called. He had, like, a tiny bit of electricity left in his uh, cell phone battery. He called his dad, and he, said, and he looked at the street corner. He said, I'm in the corner of, you know, what, you know 10th and 18th or whatever, wherever he was. Like, and so his dad map-quested him back to the hotel, like, talk, <laughs> <laughs> like, talked him in. <laughs> so that was, yeah, yeah, we showed it to the platoon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for the military, how have they responded? They really liked it. I mean, I was amazed. There's some pretty raw material in there, mm. you know? And, I mean, there's firefights where they're in gym shorts and flip-flops. Like, that's not Army protocol. Like, and the Army <laughs> hates things that are out of protocol, you know? I mean, it's... And, um, but I think they understood that there was an emotional truth here. There was a reality to this film that was important for the soldiers, and it was important to the families and ultimately important to the country to understand. And we're all used to the image that the military puts forward of a kind of like orderly, perfect like organization. It is that at times, and at other times it's not that. And if you take 30 guys and put them on a hilltop for a year behind sandbags without any access to the outside world, without women, without anything for a year, they were in almost 500 firefights. You do that to 20 men, 30 men, it's going to get a little funky up there. And I think the military understands that and understands that that's a truth that needs to be understood. Like, if we're going to wage war, this is what war is. And we need to talk about it in real terms if we're going to wage it. And this is real terms. Mm -hmm. And I think they kind of got that. Um, at this point, I would like to open it to the audience for questions. And we have, um, there's microphones that... Um, and one thing is, is so we can answer as many questions as possible. If you would keep your, if you could just ask your questions, and if you have comments, just keep them brief. Um, there's a question down here, and here comes the microphone. Thank you. 
And if you can also say who you are. Hi, I'm Stuart Brand. Um, I'll ask you a question I asked uh, General Casey this afternoon, which is battle company was so skilled and the Taliban going up against them became skilled fighting this very capable military. Yeah. And the Afghans that are on our side were not mentioned much in your book and when they were not with enormous respect. When we eventually pull out, the Taliban will be more skilled than when we came, assuming they're still operative. Our guys will not be that much more skilled. What happens then? And is there any way to, this happened in Vietnam, right? So yeah. how, do we, how, do, how do you get ahead of that one? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, uh, I mean, basically, the, the Korangal is not a microcosm of Afghanistan, but it is an interesting sort of like laboratory experiment, right? I mean, you have 150 men in the U.S. military. Can they control six miles of a sort of rugged valley? They can control it enough to survive. They can't control it, control it. They can't do what they want there. A battalion... Six, seven hundred men could have done anything they wanted. If they'd had a battalion in that valley, I don't. I think there would have been hardly any combat. Actually, I mean, the Taliban wouldn't have had a chance. They wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been worth it. They could have put in a road. They could have dug the wells. They could have built the schools. Whatever they wanted to do, they, I think they could have done it. So, I mean, ultimately, the question is, like, if you fight insurgency on the cheap, which is what we've been doing in Afghanistan, and I think personally, my opinion, because of we did that because of Iraq. This is what you get. You get this movie, right? If we had the resources and the assets to have devoted all of our military and diplomatic power to Afghanistan, I don't think, I literally think that, there, I don't think there'd be a war worth mentioning there right now. But here we are. You know, like, we're, this is the situation we're in. Um, I'm not sure the U.S. can give more. I think it might be up to the rest of the world. I don't think the rest of the world is willing to. And so I think... The outcome of this, unfortunately, is not going to be successful. That's, I mean, that's a guess. I hope it's not true for us, but also, I mean, very importantly for the Afghans. Um, the, since NATO has been in Afghanistan in 2001, I mean, in the night, I think I said this, in the 90s, 400,000 Afghans were killed in the violence of the 90s. That was brought to a stop by 9-11 and by NATO. Since NATO has been in Afghanistan, 16,000 Afghans have been killed. It went from 400,000 to 16,000. Like, this is the least violent period in Afghan history in 30 years. If this does not work, I have no idea if 9-11 is going to happen again. I have no idea if this will affect our national security, et cetera, et cetera. It could. I understand the argument that it might. I don't know. Who knows? I'm pretty confident it will go back to the 1990s in Afghanistan. And it will be those people who once again pay the price for the sort of geopolitics of the world in that area. And that to me, I mean, I understand the good intentions when people say we have to pull out of there, like this war is going on and on, we have to pull out of there. I understand the good intentions. People who say that do not know what the 90s was like. It was a horror show. And it's going back to that. And so I don't know what to say. You know, I don't know what to say. I wish there was a kind of collective effort like in World War II you know, I mean, the world defeated the German army in World War II, and the world can defeat the Taliban. They're just choosing not to. And it will be the Afghans who pay the price for that. Yes, there's a gentleman over here. 
Jack Crawford, I would uh, wonder what your reaction was and the soldiers' reactions separately uh, when they found subsequently that uh, our government had completely pulled out of the valley. That was very complicated for the soldiers. I mean, emotionally, they were very upset. Um, they also understood that decisions get made. I mean, war is, you know, it's a chess game. And there are squares on the board that are very important that, after, you know, by the middle of the game are not important. And they all, they all know their military history. They know that the, you know, the, um, the farm where the Battle of Gettysburg was fought was not important at all. It was just happened to be where the armies met. And they know about Dunkirk. I mean, the Allies lost 30,000 30, casualties at Dunkirk. I mean, a complete blunder. And they still won World War II. Like, the soldiers know this, you know. Um, the, the, the base in the Korangal was, was put up be, with the expectation that there would be a battalion-level force in there. They, the, they, they didn't have it. Four or five years went by. They never got their battalion. And the command finally decided, like, the, the, the 150 men in the Korangal are better used elsewhere. If we're not going to get a battalion in there to do what we need to do, we might as well pull out. And the soldiers sort of understand the logic of that. Um, there's logic and there's your heart. And what, what was in their hearts was our brothers died there, we fought there, what was it all for? So it really is kind of two parallel ways of understanding it that I think ultimately are not reconcilable. I mean, the closest anyone came was Brendan O'Byrne, who's in the movie a little bit, he's very prominent in my book, and he said um, to, his, to his friends in the platoon, they were kind of discussing this on Facebook, basically. And he, sa- he, he posted something on Facebook, he said, he said, you know, that, that, that piece of terrain was not important. That's, we weren't fighting there because that hill was important. That hill's important because we fought there. And we fought for each other there, and we risked our lives, and we died for each other there, and you can't withdraw from that. You can't take that away. That's ours for our entire lives. And, you know, in a sense, he was right. And I think those words brought a certain amount of um, uh, peace to people's minds about it in the platoon. Yes. Nina Zale. It was a great film. Thank you. Um, how hard was it for you to get permission to do this? It was extremely easy to get permission. There's, there's an embed pro- program that started in 2003 with the U.S. military. Um, if you're an accredited journalist, you sign up with the public affairs office. They put you with a frontline unit. I was with Battle Company in Zabal province in 2005, and... Um, I really liked them, and I thought if they go back to Afghanistan, not Iraq, I did not want to cover Iraq, but if they go back to Afghanistan, I want to follow one platoon for a whole deployment. When I found out that they were going back to Afghanistan, I contacted the PAO, Public Affairs Office, and I said, I want to follow one platoon. Can I rejoin Battle Company? I was with them in 2005, and they said, yep, absolutely. So I told them my plan to go back over and over again. Journalists almost never do that, and they were good with it. They were like, you come back as often as you need to, and, and it was... I was never censored. I was never, I mean, I only have my experience. I know other journalists might have other experiences, but for me, I was never censored. No one ever asked to look at my notebooks, to look at my film. We produced uh, very, very honest and painful Vanity Fair articles and ABC Nightline reports that showed U.S. casualties, showed Afghan civilian casualties. Those things aired. Um, we were welcomed back after that. Like, there was never an issue. It was pretty amazing. 
Did they have to do anything to protect you? Any, anything extra? The soldiers? Well, just the, the military. They yell at me to get down sometimes. <laughs> no, no, they didn't. I mean, I, you know, I've been in a lot of wars, and I knew what to do. I mean, you just get very – any of you all in that situation would figure it out in a few days. Like, you get very imitative. I mean, I think it's probably the same if you go to prison. You, like, look around, and you see what everyone else is doing, and you do that because you don't want to stick out, you know? And if you're on a patrol with, with you know – Combat infantry in enemy territory, like, if they're not talking, you don't talk. And it's pretty clear. <laughs> you know, you don't, it's easy. It's in a weird way, it's kind of easy. If they're not, if they're keeping 30 feet between each person in the line, you don't walk up on the next person in front of you. And um, so th- my safety was their safety. Like, they were, they were operating in a way in combat that protected the whole group. That's where my safety lay. It wasn't about me or any individual person. It was about the group. So all I had to do was not, not get in the way. I was very good at taking cover, you know, pretty quickly. Um, I hit the camera button, you know, the button on the camera first and run for cover. And, and they had weapons. I had a camera. I mean, that was my job was to shoot video. Did, was it hard for you to gain their trust in terms of the interviews? And how did the interviews that you did at Restrepo compare in terms of their emotional candor with what you did in Italy? You know, out at Restrepo, they were still fighting. And, and they were, none of us, and I intentionally include myself there, really wanted to get in touch. No one wanted to get in touch with their fear or their anything. Um, it, it, combat is a place where you, do really not, you really do not want emotions. And so the interviews out there... They had a certain value, but they did not, the guys did not go into their hearts in those interviews. They couldn't afford to. One guy started crying. I turned the camera off. Um, It was Pemble. I was talking to him about the death of Restrepo, and halfway through the conversation, he started crying, and I realized, like, you can't make these guys go there. Like, they're still fighting this war, you know? So afterwards, when they got back to Italy, we interviewed them three months later, and it was really extraordinary because they were out of danger. The deployment was over. But we weren't, Tim and I, I did most of the interviews, right? Tim and I were not authority figures. We, we were older than them, but we'd been there with them. We weren't the battalion, the brigade shrink. We weren't an officer. We weren't a boss. We weren't a parent, but we were older. And it was almost, the interviews were almost sort of therapy sessions on both sides, you know, like, Every single guy that we interviewed spent the whole interview trying not to cry. What you don't see, because we didn't have a camera on me, well, I was doing the same thing. You know, it was a very, very emotional, very intense, incredibly exhausting. I mean, if someone, if you asked me, like, what was the hardest part of that whole thing, it was the interviews in Italy. Like, emotionally, it was just gutting. Um, but they opened up because they knew us. We'd spent... Tim and I had spent 10 months with them. And um, without those interviews, I, I don't think there'd be a movie, you know? Take those interviews out of what you saw. There's no movie, I don't think. Questions on this side? No. All right. Uh, this gentleman. Uh, Adam Goldsmith, have you been in touch with Restrepo's family at all, and what are their feelings about all yeah, this? Yeah, I, I had dinner with... Um, Restrepo's mother, Restrepo was from uh, Colombia. He was born in Colombia. He came to this country as, as a young boy. His family lives in Florida, and I, I, I had uh, 
lovely dinner with his mom and some of her friends and relatives, about five of us. Um, a really amazing woman. Um, she said, you know, my son was trying to find his way in life, and he thought he could find his way through the army, and I think he could have, except he got killed. But um, uh, we, had to, we had a very long talk about it. And, and, and at one point she said, tell me how he died. Like, tell me the details of how he died. And I was, I was like, what do you mean, the details? She said, everything you know, like, tell me. And um, so I told her. And it was very difficult conversation. And um, she was sort of stronger about it than I was, actually. And then she said, tell me about the young man that killed him. Do you think they... Do you think he was killed? And I was like, it felt like it was, this was going in a kind of, to an ugly place, you know? And I said, I don't know. There's no way to know that. You know, they were shooting from a few hundred meters. It was an ambush, 270 degree ambush. Like, who knows? There's no way to know. And she said, well, I hope they didn't. She She said, I worry about that young man. Like, he chose a path in life that was violent. And I he needs to, like his soul, like his soul has a problem now because he killed my son and I worry about his soul. And I hope he understands at some point that the path that he chose is not the right path. And if my son had survived, I hope, you know, I would hope that he would understand the same thing eventually. And I pray for that guy. And I, I was just like, you know, right now in the world, things are so... You know, you're with us, you're against us. It's so, like, didactic. It's so um, polarized in the world and in this country. It's so polarized. And I thought, my God, here's a woman who lost her son, and she's worried about the soul of the Taliban fighter who killed him. Like, there's a person to emulate. Like, there's someone who sees a future for this country and, for that matter, for the Taliban. I mean, they have their own problems as well, you know. I was just incredibly moved by her. Uh, back here, please. Uh, your book is divided into three parts, uh, fear, killing, and love. Uh, the key emotions that the soldiers have there. Uh, from my perspective, having read the book, uh, it seems as though there was more emphasis on the emotion of love and tribalism between the soldiers than in the movie. Do you agree with that statement? And uh, if not, uh, compare and contrast the balance between the book and the movie and those three emotions. Well, you know, the movie can't go into ideas. It can't go into concepts. It's restricted to what happened in front of us. And, you know, soldiers really weren't taught, they were affected by the brotherhood that existed out there. I mean, I sort of termed it a form of love. It was a form of love. They didn't talk about it in those terms, you know. So my book went places intellectually that the movie really can't because we're really restricted to what we were watching. And we interviewed those guys in Italy, um, but we didn't take the conversation into play, into very abstract places. Um, so what I really, I sort of saw the two projects as complementing each other. Like, there's the 
I mean, I'm not a neurologist, but there's the part of your mind which is abstract and articulate and uses words and concepts, and there's the part of your mind which is like visual and reactive. And I, I saw the movie as appealing to what, you know, that, that, that one part of the mind, and the book appeals to the other. And they both, if you're taken together, they sort of explain the experience of combat. I, I didn't see that they ever could sort of like overlap much. And there are things in the book in terms of you have a sense of the physicality of their experience. Um, and you talk in the book about the, the different terrains, um, the physical terrain and the geographical and the human. Um, but there is a lot of, if, for those of you who haven't read the book, I would really um, encourage you to read it because th it gives, there's nuance in the book and there's detail in the book that you just, you, those guys showered every 38 days? Yeah, so roughly. They had a cooked meal every 38 days. They wore flea collars. There were spiders and fly. I mean, just the physical, it, it doesn't, it, having those details actually makes yeah. it an even grimmer, uh, you cre it creates an even grimmer yeah. physical picture that I think is helpful um, for people. Um, could you talk a little bit about, one of the things that I truly appreciate about your film is the sort of the startling intimacy of the interaction um, within the second company, and I'm wondering if you could address. There's a you know there's a there's a tendency for people who are civilians to say they're adrenaline junkies. And the end of uh, Hurt Locker, he goes back, and it's kind of a confusing ending for people who go, "Why would you go back to that?" I, what I think, and you, you go into it in your book in terms of it's it's a much more sort of nuanced and complicated portrait of the soldier. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated thing for civilians to reconcile themselves with the fact that soldiers want to go back into combat. Many of them do. Most of them probably do. That's an awful thing at, on the face of it, you know? And, and civilians really have a hard time reconciling, them, reconciling themselves to that. And the way they do it, and the way it was done in the Hurt Locker, which I think is, for the most part, erroneous, but it's basically pathologized. It's like, okay... Um, you're an adrenaline junkie. You're, you're addicted to combat. It's like a person in a dysfunctional relationship. Well, like, okay, you're, you know, you're addicted to that drama of that awful marriage you're in. You know, it's sort of pathologized. You know, actually, what's happening, I think, um, no one wants, I mean, very few people really want to go back and play Russian roulette over and over again until they get killed. Like, very few people want to do that. Some do. They're crazy. You know, that's not most soldiers. Um, that's sort of what they were describing in the Hurt Locker. What, what, what I think is actually, the thing that they're actually addicted to, I think, is brotherhood. And brotherhood's very different from friendship. Very, very important to understand the distinction. Like, friendship is the result of your feelings for another person. You like them, they're your friend. You'll help them because you like them, right? Brotherhood has nothing to do with your feelings, as, as Brendan O'Byrne said to me at one point, there are guys in the platoon who straight up hate each other and we would all die for each other. This is what brotherhood is, is the understanding that the welfare of the group is more important than your own individual welfare. Um, you would rather die protecting the group than save yourself and watch the group get killed. That's brotherhood. And if you take a 19-year-old who, walking around the streets of his hometown, is at the bottom of the food chain socially. Like, you can't get a job. 
all the girls your age are dating, dating guys in college or whatever, like you're, you're nowhere, you know, socially. And you take that guy and you put him in a platoon at Restrepo. He knows who he is. He has a sense of purpose, uh, understanding of, of, he has a sense of being necessary. You're not, as a 19-year-old, you're not necessary in this society. You're, you feel totally superfluous. I mean, I'm thinking back to when I was 19. It's an agonizing feeling, like, what am I doing here? I have no value. Like, that's what it feels like. You know, out there, suddenly you have a, a, an incredible value. And you have this brotherhood. So you, you, you give these guys that experience. And then you bring them back to society, and all of a sudden they have no value again. That is agonizing. And so what they're going back for isn't this sort of pathological, like, Russian roulette game. It is, they're going back for something very healthy. It's a sense of purpose and meaning. Like, every human being deserves a sense of purpose and meaning. And at 19 or 20, it's very, those feelings are very, very hard to come by in society. And, and, and out there, they know they can get them. I think that's what they're going back for. The Hurt Locker, it was a, it was a brilliant film in many ways, but it completely missed that level of it. Do we have any more questions? Oh, there's a question way in the back, please. Yeah, Sophie Delaunay. Thank you, Sebastian, for this uh, movie. Thank you. Totally overwhelming, I think. Uh, I haven't read the book yet, but uh, so maybe it's portrayed a little bit differently. But there are a few uh, surrealistic uh, sequences uh, in the movie between the uh, community leaders, the elders, and the soldiers. And I was wondering, it's, it's hard to figure out how they perceive the presence of the soldier. So I was curious to hear from you with your knowledge about Afghanistan and what you experienced there, how do you think they understand their presence and, 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 and the communication that's happening there between them? Uh, God, it, I don't think I could characterize it in one sentence. You know, like there were locals that really liked the, that had real friendships with the American soldiers. There were locals who absolutely hated them. I, I mean, the closest analogy I can think of is, you know, police in a poor neighborhood, in a high crime neighborhood. Like they're not particularly well liked. But they also know that if, the, if there were no police in that neighborhood, life would be pretty rough. And I think the only reason the Afghans are tolerating our presence at all, I'm speaking broadly now, not just about the Korangal, but more broadly, the only reason the Afghans are tolerating our presence at all is because they, under, they understand that as sort of miserable as this deal is, the 90s was a lot worse. And if NATO pulls out, it's going back to that. And that's my only explanation for why we are not seen as invaders the way the Russians were. Not by every Afghan, but I think probably by the majority. They, so they kind of understand, like, all right, this is horrible. We don't want foreigners driving around in Humvees. But if they pull out, the Taliban come back in, and it's another 10 years of hell. In the Korangal itself, um, there was a conversation that was overheard. You know, the Americans would, listen, would eavesdrop on the Taliban radio communications, right? I mean, very simple to do. You just dial into their channel. And um, there were two Taliban commanders who were having an argument. And one of them was saying, look, the Americans are building us a road. Like, why would we shoot at people who are building us a road? And the other guy was like, you're crazy. They're Americans. They must be killed. You know? and, and so it was this sort of like classic argument between like the sort of rational, pragmatic, like they're building a road. Like, chill out. And then the other guy was obviously just totally ideologically driven. I think there's a lot of arguments within the Taliban 
exactly like there are arguments in this country about what the hell we're doing there. It's the same thing, you know? So I think it's hard to characterize the relationship because they don't even understand the relationship. They're arguing about it too. I mean, that's just human, human affairs. Okay, maybe one or two more questions, one here. Mike, Mike Kuznitsky, what do you think about the uh, proposals that are being floated to bring the Taliban into a coalition type of government in, in Afghanistan? I mean, they, uh, you know, if it's okay with the Afghans, I'm not going to stand in the way of it, you know. I mean, it was the Afghans who paid the price for that regime. They were horrible. If the Afghans would rather deal with them and forgive them their sins for, in exchange for peace, uh, all right, you know. Um, I think it would, there would have to be some, some understanding that they would not play host to al-Qaeda or the deal was probably off as far as we're concerned. Um, the problem with that is that it will result in a civil war in the Taliban. Like you take good, good Taliban, you put them in power. Well, what happens if Pakistan is backing bad Taliban? That's exactly what happened in the early 90s. They backed Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who shelled the capital of his own country. He destroyed Kabul with Katyusha rockets in 1992. He was like Pakistan's, like he was the horse in the ra- he was Pakistan's horse in the race. And he shelled Kabul until they cried uncle and said, okay, you can be Minister of Defense. Right? So that's what's going to happen again. I don't think it's going to work. There was a question over here. Our politicians talk a lot about victory in Afghanistan and not leaving until the job is done. What does victory look like in Afghanistan from your perspective? I don't think we're leaving. <laughs> I mean, like in our lifetimes, I don't think we're leaving. Um, I don't think you'll necessarily be, out, you know, all out war. But I mean, what's victory in the war on crime look like? It looks like less crime than the year before. I think that's basically how you would define victory in Afghanistan. It's not victory; it's success. It's like trending success, as a trend towards stability, towards governance, towards towards less corruption towards even fewer civilian casualties. Like, I, I think victory is not, it's not a useful word. It's like, is this working better or working worse? I think that's as close as, and just like fighting crime, it's as close as you're going to get. I'd like to just ask in closing, before we move to your book signing, in closing, not for you as a journalist, but for you as a, as a person, um, what was the moment that sticks that, that really stands out for you, whether it was actually in Afghanistan, it was in the editing room, it was at a screening, um, where there was something that surprised or changed you out of this whole experience, how you, how you see the world or how you saw a person? Because I can imagine yeah. these experiences, you, just, you can't just run through them. They, they, they transform you in certain ways. One of the reasons that war reporters are war reporters is because it's an exciting job. It is. Like, I hate to put it that way because there's a lot of very ghastly, awful things that happen in war. But it all, among those things, it's also very intense. It's very exciting. And um, the fear, the fear in war and the intensity, there's such 
strong emotions, there's such strong experiences that they kind of flatten all the subtler feelings that actually would, should go along with it. I mean, war is also, it's incredibly sad. You know, but sadness is a subtle feeling. It's way more subtle than, ter- than being terrified or being excited, jacked up, you know. So my experience as a war reporter kept sort of, I kept sort of surfing along on this sort of like, on this sort of wave of terror and excitement and sense of purpose uh, and importance. I kept sort of surfing along on that. And that finally stopped in mid-January, my third trip. I was in a Humvee that got blown up. Well, the footage that you saw, that was, I shot that footage. We got blown up. And we were not hurt because the bomb went off under the engine block instead of under us. And I was jacked up all day. I mean, I was just like revved up high from this like near miss. And like by that night, I crashed. And I had just insane nightmares. And I got incredibly depressed. And I suddenly realized, I got in touch with the sadness about all this. Like, all of a sudden I understood. It sounds so stupid and obvious. But... I suddenly saw the absurdity of it. Like, oh my God, there are guys just like the guys I'm with on that hill over there and they're going to shoot at us tomorrow morning and we're going to shoot at them and they're just like us. Just change the clothes a little bit. You know, like change the language. It's the, we're the same. You know, it's like it's all the same. And I couldn't believe, like I had this understanding about the absurdity and the sadness of this whole, the tragedy of this whole thing and I was just crushed and I wanted to leave. And it wasn't because I was scared. I wanted to leave because I was depressed. I was just crushed by how sad the whole endeavor was. And I didn't leave. And the next operate, you know, the next operation down valley we did, we got ambushed. And suddenly the most important thing was finding cover because we were getting shot at. And the most important thing was not getting killed, and all that sadness went away. But I never forgot it. And that is now in my mind in my sort of like psychological processing of war, which has been a very important experience in my life, that sadness is now part of it, and it's an absolutely essential part of it. And it really, without that experience, I wouldn't have written the book that I wrote. You know, it would have been a superficial book. It wouldn't have been a book that really tried to get to the depths of these things. Um, That, to me, it was the most important experience of my year out in the Korrigal, and, you know, quite possibly of my life. I want to thank you very much for the film, for the book, for being here. Thank you. Thank you.